Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe, George Hoare, and myself, Alex Hochili. Today it's just me as I welcome US writer, political scientist, and many times cancellation target, Norman Finkelstein. Today we won't be talking about the Holocaust or Israel or Palestine, but rather about the intellectual and cultural climate in the US today. So I'm delighted to be joined by Norman Finkelstein here. Uh, Norm, how are you? Um, I'm fine. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So Norm is the author, most recently, of I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom, which is out now from Sublation. Um, and that's what we're going to be focusing on today. So I wanted to start, before we get on to cancellations, um, your own and cancellation in general, uh, to ask you about the first part of the book, which is dedicated to the key thinkers and proponents of woke politics, of identity politics and cancel culture. And I found this section of the book really neat because you've got these four principal characters all lined up in one place, and then you kind of submit them to your <laughs> to your intellectual firing squad. So without going into too much depth into the thought of each of these authors, I just wanted to uh, ask you to maybe go through them and tell us what you think unites them. Uh, it's not so much what I think unites them. It's the fact that those are the four names which most often come up in the context of identity politics and cancel culture and wokeism. And so in order to get a handle on this phenomenon, which I never really explored because it didn't seem to me there was any intellectual heft or weight to these individuals, they seem, and I, I don't, I know it may come across as pejorative, but I think an objective description is they seem more like fashion statements than they did uh, possessing political weight uh, or intellectual weight. And uh, I don't like to read lightheaded stuff. Time is short. Um, I had a person who I speak about in the book, her name was Annette Rubinstein, uh, who was a profoundly literate person, a person of the left. And she used to wear a button that said, so many books, so little time. And that being the case, especially <laughs> given that I'm uh, heading full speed towards 70 years old, I have to husband my intellectual resources. So I didn't want to invest in it. But it was clear that it was this phenomenon called cancel culture and uh, wokeism was having a really pernicious effect, not in society in general. I don't want to make too broad claims about this phenomenon, but certainly in what's called the left, it was having in my opinion, a clearly pernicious effect. Uh, I don't speak about those things in the abstract. I speak about them concretely. They were playing a really uh, nefarious role during the Bernie campaigns in 2016 and Mm -hmm. 2020. Uh, They were giving credibility to a so-called left critique of Bernie and undermining both his credibility and the uh, momentum of the movement. 
So it was on those grounds I just sat down. I said, okay, these are the people, these are the names that keep coming up. These are the names on the bestseller list. Uh, these are the names that are being wildly promoted. Uh, and it came down to Robin D'Angelo, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, Ibram X. Kendi, and then more broadly, this cult that surrounded Barack Obama. And that cult uh, had a very pernicious effect because behind the scenes, uh, Barack Obama was doing everything possible to undermine the Bernie campaign and finally played a major role because he got Pete Buttigieg out of the race, uh, out of the primary race in 2020, probably had an impact also on uh, Amy Klobuchar. And then that left a clear field for um, uh Joe Biden to win the primary, even though up until South Carolina, it actually looked like uh, Bernie was going to win. He had all the momentum. So on those grounds, which were strictly political, uh, I had no interest really in this thing called council culture because the folks, its exemplars just didn't strike me as the brightest lights on the circuit. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to, as I said, squander my precious time left uh, on uh, uh the terrestrial uh, uh, among the living uh, reading it. But then I sat down, I read it, and I can't say I was altogether surprised. It's just junk. <laughs> well, and, and that comes through. You've obviously, it's, you provide a service in exposing that, but also I think probably more importantly, in contrasting and, and the contrast that you make with figures like, for example, Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King or W.B. Du Bois um, in showing up not only how shallow the, those politics are, but how much they 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 fail in terms of being anti-racist, even in, in, in being the very kind of nub of what they are meant to be about. Well, Douglas was a stupendous historical figure. About that, there can't be any serious doubt, and he was widely regarded as the African American giant of the nineteenth century. Maybe some others were unfairly marginalized because of his overwhelming presence. But he was a very formidable figure uh, and a real extraordinary life story, considering that up until the age of 18, he was a slave and wasn't even allowed to read. And then when you see his rhetorical power, it's uh, it's just astonishing. Mm. Uh, and then when you find Ibrahim, Ibram X. Kendi uh, dismissing Douglas is a racist. <laughs> you just have to laugh. And uh, <laughs> W.E.B. Du Bois uh, also comes in as, according to Kendi, as having been initially a racist, but then having transformed himself into an anti-racist. But if you judge Du Bois against all the categories that Ibram X. Kendi establishes as being anti-racist. It's clear by Kendi's standard, he's a total racist. <laughs> um, so the contrast is on many levels. First, sheer intellectual, if I can use that expression again, sheer intellectual heft. Then there is seriousness of purpose. Then there is self-sacrifice. Though at the end, I think Frederick Douglass's ego got a little bit the better of him. Uh, the boys at the end um, 
was handcuffed. The U.S. government went to court, lost all his friends, ended up in exile. Paul Robeson, who also figures prominently in the book, uh, he ended up basically professionally destroyed and psychologically, emotionally destroyed. And on the other side, it's these white, woke liberals who are trying to prove their radical credentials by embracing these race grifters and race hucksters by embracing them while not having to make any material sacrifice. You know, these folks who now uh, hand over their living rooms, hand over the stage to people like Angela Davis so they can get that frisson of having to rub shoulders with Angela, but doing it at Martha's Vineyard. Um, there's no sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to nail themselves to the cross, but certainly one always expected from a person who called him or herself a radical that there would be inevitably, not because it was chosen, but that inevitably there would be a significant element Mm. of self-sacrifice, of paying a price. That's what it meant to be a radical, was people who had all the uh, qualifications to make it in mainstream society, but opted from a sense of commitment to the cause of the down and out, the have-nots, the wretched of the earth, opted out of a promising career because of their gifts and their uh, uh, conscientiousness, opted out and joined the cause. Yeah, These people don't join a cause. It's just all preening and posing for the cameras. It's a mixture of pitiful and contemptible. Yeah. So um, before we get into a little bit more depth on the kind of politics of not just of these figures, but um, of the whole edifice um, and what has changed in the culture, I wanted to ask you more about yourself directly, because you've famously undergone many cancellations, I guess, cancellation avant la lettre. Um, And actually, you know, it's tempting to say, well, what's changed then? What's new? I mean, if you uh, were the object of, you know, of what's now called cancellations already 30, 40 years ago, then what's changed in the culture? Well, it's a truism. It's just a hackneyed phrase to say there's always been cancel culture. Anybody who crosses the boundaries of, so to speak, respectable public opinion and starts to rock the boat in ways that undermine or challenge the whole system of power, you get canceled. Everybody knows from Socrates (laughs) and the hemlock um, to onward, that's a, what you might call an occupational hazard of being somebody uh, beyond the respectable spectrum. I never saw myself as a person who was canceled by the left 
Uh, but when I start to touch on issues like the Israel-Palestine conflict, you could say I was a victim of cancellation of corporate po- culture, namely mm. the powers that be. Uh, I came into collision, not so much because of what I said. I think it was mostly because I was quite effective at what I said. I had a kind of, you know, I had a certain kind of immunities because of my family background. Uh, it didn't stop people from calling me a Holocaust denier, but it put uh, caused a certain amount of greater difficulty, given my family background, to use the usual epithets against me, Holocaust denier, self-hating Jew, and so on and so forth. Mm. So that gave me, as I said, a certain degree, in the end it didn't help, but a certain degree of immunity. And also I worked hard. I was very conscientious. I devoted four decades of my life to mastering every single detail, every single period, comma, on the Israel-Palestine conflict. And not just mastering it once, but twice, three and four times. I kept rereading and rereading and rereading to be sure I didn't make an error. Um, So, um, and I became a, a force, you could say, I think it's fair to say, I became a force to reckon with in public debate in the public arena. And it was that less less so my actual opinions than uh, that I uh, was uh, I was rhetorically solid and intellectually solid and I was canceled. Um, uh, so I was, you could say, I was a victim of cancellation by corporate culture. Um, and up until recently, there has been, of course, a phenomenon of in the 90s of what uh, was called political correctness. And political correctness was a version of current cancel culture, this kind of know-it-all vanguard pre- presumption of having a monopoly on truth and monopoly on, um, uh, not, uh, yeah, monopoly on truth. Uh, but it, it was pretty marginal. I mean, if you remember, you're too young to remember, but um, uh, political correctness, actually the term political correctness or PC, it was coined by people on the left and it was half mocking, you know, we were making fun of the fact mm. of how silly we sometimes can conduct ourselves in our self-righteous certitudes. Uh, what's changed very dramatically is that this kind of cancellation or these self-righteous certitudes about race and uh, uh, kindred topics, uh, sexual orientation, uh, that's no longer marginal. I mean, it's, if you go back, I talk about in the book, if you go back to the 1990s, when all of these nasty books were coming out on, say, subjects like race, uh, IQ, race mm-hmm. and IQ. Yeah. Um, Newspapers like the New York Times completely embraced it when the book, for example, The Bell Curve came out, uh, which for all of the frills, it was basically 10 pages in the book that anybody cared about. Everybody pretended to be caring about the whole idea and concept. And there were all of these very fancy appendices to the book. Most of the book of my memory, at least a good third of it is appendices, highly technical appendices. Uh, nobody gave a darn about that. Basically, all they cared about was Hernstein and uh, Murray were saying that there's good reason to believe that black people are intellectually inferior to white people. It's a genetic 
fact. Uh, the Times gave the book a glowing review. A glowing review. Mm -hmm. Then there was a guy named Rushton, this Canadian fellow, who posited that there is an inverse relationship between penis size and intelligence. So black people may have bigger dicks, but they had smaller brains. So that was you know, for their readership for the times, it was kind of compensatory aside from, <laughs> okay, you know, we lose in yeah. one context, but we contest, but in the one that really counts brains, we win, you know, and, um, uh, that too got a positive review in the times, but obviously that could never happen today. In my day, it was called the newspaper of record, which means at least technically it stood above the fray that it was neither right nor left, Republican nor Democrat. It was of a higher mm. objective, neutral status. It no longer has that now. Yes, well, nothing stands above the fray uh, nowadays, yes, I guess. Now, ever wars, since yeah. Nancy Pelosi announced the resistance. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. At that point, it ceased to have that kind of stature anymore. Now it's just kind of a supermarket tabloid. Maybe the articles are a little bit longer than supermarket tabloids. All these liberal journals, you know, these have all become woke institutions. The big difference between PC, political correctness of my era is, was a, you know, was a completely marginal phenomenon confined mostly to colleges and universities and laughed and frowned upon by the mainstream. Yeah. But now this phenomenon of wokeness uh, occupies a very significant place of power in our society. Uh, and that's a, that's a change. So, I mean, you know, when talking about wokeness, I, I found my personal experience recently, even over the past couple of months, is that whenever you say even the word woke uh, or call something woke, you're immediately asked to define it. And this seems to be, uh, to me, the new sort of defense mechanism. But now that we're, now that we're here, it'd be interesting to try to sort of define it, I guess, or I'm curious how you use the word, what you have in mind when you say that. Well... Um, first of all, there are different aspects of wokeness. This whole issue of defining it actually went viral when Brianna Joy Gray, who I like a lot, she asked an author who came on and wrote a book uh, in which wokeness figured prominently, can you tell us what you mean? And she was, um, she, <laughs> she was tongue-tied. She had no idea how to answer the question. Uh, I thought, you know, Brianna... She's very sharp, uh, and she can be polemical, which so can I. Um, but I thought the question was asked in good faith. And then some people started to ask me, what do you mean by wokeness? Meaning myself, in private, you know, in uh, correspondence. And um, first of all, I had never any interest in what are called the, you know, the intellectual roots of wokeness, whether it's Foucault or Deleuze or all of these French... You know, da. I don't give a darn. It never interested me. You know, Foucault probably has some things of interest to say, uh, but not beyond. Uh, in any event, I was interested in it as a political phenomenon. I'm, I'm way past caring about getting tenure. Uh, never happened and never will happen. But I noticed that in class, I was really 
<laughs> I sweated. I like to joke. I like to laugh. If you've mm -hmm. read my book, you'll see. Um, I, I, I pride myself on not taking life too seriously, even in the grimmest of moments. Uh, my credo is I can't laugh. I don't want your revolution. Um, so uh, I found myself sweating bullets after every time a joke came to my mind, you know, who is this going to offend? And, <laughs> right. uh, and if you were to ask me what wokeness is as a political phenomenon, uh, which is only the only thing that concerns me or interests me, I'd say, first of all, it's the attempt of the Democratic Party to find a new base for itself as the white working class uh, for various reasons no longer finds the Democratic Party a hospitable place. Uh, they had to replace uh, their core base and the core base then became the identity politics. Uh, you can see an interesting balancing act in Biden, uh, the current president and the presumed uh, candidate again, Democratic Party. When he comes to office, he chooses a black woman as vice presidential candidate. Then he makes the promise he's going to choose a black woman as the Supreme Court nominee. Uh, and then he chooses as his press secretary a black lesbian woman. Uh, so he's obviously playing this identity card, a politics card to the hilt, uh, presumably in order to get the black woman vote, which is a significant demographic. But on the other hand, Biden is, apart from Bernie, he was the only one in the primary who was also still trying to get that white working class vote. He hadn't given up on it. Every All the other candidates, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, mm -hmm. uh, the rest, forget white working class, that's how. Uh, they were trying to get different demographics. Uh, so that's one aspect. The second aspect of identity politics is it's basically used as a juggernaut, uh, and very consciously, I think, very wittingly. It's being used as it's been weaponized by the Democratic Party in order to stop a Bernie-style insurgency from below within the party. And uh, that became very clear during the 2016 and 2020 elections when all the high priests and high priestesses of woke politics, uh, they went after Bernie. That was their job, you know, so... Angela Davis says that Bernie is weak on the African-American question. Ta-Nehisi Coates says that Bernie is weak on the rep black reparations question. And uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, she says, oh, here I'm paraphrasing, oh, Bernie's this kind of white, old Jewish schmuck. Uh, the real action is the corporations, she said, you know, Jeff Bezos honoring Black Lives Matter and posting the uh, uh, rainbow colors of the uh, sexual orientation movement. Yeah, so that, that's the second aspect of this identity politics uh, or wokeness. And the third aspect, which to me is not trivial, is it's a way for people to pretend as if they're radical without making any sacrifices. In my day, there was an expression called committing class suicide. 
and committing class suicide meant if you were a person of, of a privileged background, in order to become part of the movement, you had to give up a lot. If, you know, people like Lenin, Vladimir Ilyich, you know, Lenin came from nobility background, nobility in the ranks, because yeah. his father was a very successful school administrator. Same thing with Rosa Luxemburg. You know, Rosa Luxemburg came from a middle-class family. And all of these people, in maybe not in the literal sense, but certainly in the metaphorical sense, they committed class suicide. They gave themselves over to the cause. They found themselves often, in the case of Lenin, in exile. In the case of Rosa, in jail. She spent put in many prison stints. In the case of Lenin, several assassination attempts. In the case of Rosa, she was murdered. Uh, that's what it meant. And now you have these people who are raking in money hand over foot. I mean, I know that may sound like crude Marxism, but I'm sorry. They're making a killing. Angela has her new L.A. fashion line. Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, gives Ibram X. Kendi $10 million. Jeff Bezos gives Obama $100 million. Gives Van Jones, this CNN uh, black correspondent, a hundred million dollars. I mean, these are spectacular sums of money. And you can go down the list. Patrice Cullors, you know, the head of Black Lives Matter, or the anointed head. Mm. Uh, she buys four homes in one year. She says, "What are you buying four homes?" She says, "I do it for my people." Like she does it for black people. <laughs> yeah. I bought a home. I bought a home for my son, who's eight years old, by the way. I buy a home for my mother. You know, that's doing it for your people. That's like you know, when the uh, crown prince of Saudi Arabia buys a home for his twelve wives and sixteen kids. <laughs> he's doing it. He's doing it for the Arab people. He's doing it for the Arab people. These people are so laughable. Yeah, I mean, and and what what strikes me actually hearing you say that as well is the way that, and this is a, a kind of a broader tendency, uh, it seems to me, of dressing up um, interest, self interest, and not in a in a kind of class sense, but in in a kind of very immediate, either personal self interest or group self interest, which doesn't have anything emancipatory or ethical or anything about it um, and dressing that up in in radical terms and so again you have you know the idea of getting a marginalized supposedly marginalized or minority um, in, of the population being equally represented um, amongst the wealthy for example which changes rather yes, that, nothing the, thir- the third aspect is privileged people getting to have their cake and eat it pretending that they're radical and the fourth aspect is all these race grifters inventing new kinds of identities uh, so, I am a black le- I am I am a black lesbian transsexual whatever. Each identity is unique, and if you don't accept them at the table of the one percent, then you're acting privileged. So all of these folks inventing these complicated uh, identities and then act and then demanding equal representation for my particular identity. You find that in Kimberly Crenshaw, who says, if you're a black woman, if you're a black woman, you have three identities, not two, three. Why? Mm -hmm. You're black, you're a woman, and then third, you're a black woman. 
Um, you may not be able to process that because it's intellectually not processable. So that's great. Now you have three identities, and of course you you're doing much better than those who only have an impoverished two identities. And that gives you then the right to demand representation for your triple unique identity. So it's just a kind of identity politics sweepstakes, whereby the more, the more identities you can invent, the more you get to be pushed or to catapult yourself to the head of the line. Hmm. So a lot of this discussion obviously will sound, it sounds particularly, you know, US American. And it obviously, it's, I think it's quite obvious how and why this has flourished in the US, where um, the whole kind of way of, the way that states and authorities engage with people is through various different kind of categories, you know, breaking down whether it's affirmative action that, you know, each different segment of society, each community gets its representation and so on. And in that, and especially in a situation of low economic growth, everyone's climbing all over each other um, to get ahead. And so using, making it, taking advantage of these categories and inserting yourself into different categories is a way to get ahead. That all makes sense. I wonder then, you know, why this why wokeness seems to have appeal well beyond the US in in contexts which are different. And I know, I mean, we corresponded a, a briefly about this before, um, before we spoke. Um, but I think it's, on the one hand, I'm always tempted to provincialize kind of woke identity politics as much as possible and say, look, this is something that comes out of the US, it comes out of the exigencies of the US Democratic Party, which is something that you've already pointed out. And I think that's a very um, important aspect. And one can translate that, I guess, to other contexts and say, well, that it also serves um, a way of delegitimizing any kind of more universalist class-based claims elsewhere. But it's still, I don't know, it's, for me, that still doesn't answer why it's um, it's gone well beyond that. Because, of course, it wasn't necessarily a Bernie and, you know, it, and, and the same line of attack, woke line of attack against a Bernie in, in other contexts. Um, I, I noticed in the 1990s, late 1980s and early 1990s, I spent quite a lot of time in Palestine. I would travel there in the summers to see old friends and also to see what the situation was in the ground. And I noticed uh, one family I stayed with, the woman in the household, she was a teacher and she was applying for her master's degree. And I noticed that in the textbooks, all the textbooks were filled with all of this cutting edge gobbledygook that was being taught in the United States. And this postmodern crap, and which they teach in uh, educational, uh, you know, to get educational degree, these flaky institutions. And I remember thinking, if this stuff isn't horrible enough in itself, and if the Palestinian people haven't suffered enough in themselves to inflict this yeah. shit on them. And then you see, because I'm talking about you know a little village in Palestine called Beit Sahur. It's outside Bethlehem. And they're having to get their master's degrees by reading this postmodern, incomprehensible, 
language which is so it's so it kills the soul <laughs> it does you know that you know told me just how pervasive how powerful how potent this thing they call in the United States uh, soft power in this case American cultural power is how everybody thinks it who see conceives this as a sign of them being so westernized and cutting edge by imitating every idiotic every idiotic fad that uh passes yeah. through the uh, american academy um so i think that's part of it but i don't think that's a full explanation of what's going on it's the cultural worship of the united states yeah uh, but i read your article and you pointed out how completely completely irrelevant a lot of these uh debates are in societies which are wholly con which are constituted in a wholly different way all white societies or you know societies which didn't go through the same experience of slavery and all the particularities of the united states are completely ignored as these people whole hog appropriate the crazinesses of uh, our woke culture and try to fit a craziness which is already already yeah <laughs> and degrees removed from reality to try to fit it on their own foundations and then you just get <laughs> complete insanity yeah and i mean I, I guess one you know one solution or one way to approach that is to try to reconnect you know, societies with their own radical histories rather than just importing them. And I think your book does a great service, at least in, in the US context of kind of looking back at these radical anti-racists and say, hey, look at this thing like this. <laughs> this is what real radicalism was, not whatever Ibram X. Kendi is, uh, is saying. I was a Maoist. No, I admit it was a, a, a slightly, <laughs> it wasn't, I wasn't entirely wrong, but it was a slightly lunatic phase in my life and <laughs> I, I walked around in the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, their uh, winter coat was a blue winter coat and I had the Mao cap and the whole regalia, you know. But one thing I could say in my defense was, if I dare say anything in my defense, um, even though, even as it was completely irrelevant in the United States, as I sat on the phone with my friends and argued about the dictatorship of the proletariat and whether Althusser was right or whether um, uh, Toglietti was right. In, it, it was Toglietti at that point, but uh, you get my point. Okay, mm. so not, nutty, nutty, I admit. However, the Chinese revolution was a real phenomenon. It wasn't something pulled from thin air. That was, for better and for worse, it was a radical transformation of Chinese society, converting it from what was the sick man of Asia in the early 1900s to a century late. Uh, a century later, China is now the cutting edge of world capitalism, and that couldn't have happened in the absence of the total overhaul of Chinese society. So even though I was 
in the context of the United States, what I was doing was crazy. At least there was a reality to Maoism in China. Yeah. <laughs> China was transformed in ways which I think any honest person has to say was stupendous. It was, in my opinion, by far and away, nothing even re remotely compares to it. Uh, it was by far and away the most stupendous historical event of the 20th century. China was, it used to be said, three out of every four people have never visited China. And one of every four lives there. It's a quarter of humanity. And a quarter of humanity was transformed from the sick men of Asia, the poorest place on God's earth. Okay, you could say parts of Africa, but China was very much, you know, in 1920s, it wasn't mm. far from Africa. It was the poorest place in God's earth into something now that's, assuming the United States doesn't nuke it, and that's a real possibility, assuming the United States doesn't nuke it, it's, it's uh, on its path to replacing the United yeah. States as the world's hegemon. So at least there was something real there. But in the case of wokeness, wokeness has no reality here. And it's being appropriated around the world, like my being a Maoist in the United States. Even its foundation is completely lunatic here. Yeah. And people are appropriating the lunacies around the world. So I wanted to, oh, oh, I'm glad you went there, actually, because I wanted to ask you, um, I think you're, if I'm not mistaken, you were 20 in 1973. Is that right? Something like that. Um, so I wondered how much continuity, actually, you might see between today's um, left politics or left liberal politics, as it happens, and that of the new left of the 60s and 70s. Um, so I'm, you know, I, I, I love Philip Roth's American Pastoral, where he talks, you know, there's... I the hate main... that book. You hate that book? I think that book was so horrible. It's well, not, it's not surprising. It's so celebrated. <laughs> well, so... The reason I mention it is just because I feel like it somehow is more evocative of today's world than maybe it was of, of, of the 1960s and 70s. So I might be mistaken. I obviously wasn't alive then. But anyway, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what what continuities you might actually find between the kind of the, the 60s and 70s new left and um, woke politics today, if, if any at all. Well, I want to just say a quick word about that American pastoral. It's the only book I could not finish because I found it unstomachable, literally. It just made my innards writhe. Because the whole point of the book is to show here was the rugged white worker of the 1950s, in the case of his father, making these gloves. And he describes the process of making gloves to the point that, you know, you want to just, you're driven mad. I mean, <laughs> but then he contrasts the rugged, hardworking, um, workers in the 1950s in Newark, New Jersey, and that that 60s generation who were a bunch of flakes and they all had some sort of emotional or mental or psychological problem. And that was the daughter of the hardworking person. And if you recall, she had a stutter. She couldn't speak. So the whole point was her radicalism it didn't come from the fact that people were genuinely outraged at the war in Vietnam, genuinely outraged. 
that people weren't um, genuinely outraged at the racism that was being physically inflicted on people in the American South. No, it's because they all had some sort of psychological, uh, emotional problem. Now, I don't deny that there were a lot of people like that in the 1960s. They were flaky. I have no problem with that. I knew them. I was part of it. I knew it. But there were a lot of people who were pretty damn serious about it. And for him to choose as the exemplary character, this daughter with the stutter, and she obviously suffered many a mental uh, a mental uh, problem. Uh, I found the book disgusting, really. I, 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 it was the one Philip Roth book, because every time I traveled, I would go to the uh, airport uh, bookstore and pick up a Philip Roth book. It was the one I couldn't finish because it made me sick uh, to read it. But that's a, a, a digression, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of like it because of, because it, it, it provokes at that. Um, I, I just thought the daughter, you know, her stutter is a, a, a metaphor for that generation's inability to give proper expression to the politics, proper expression to the race. I don't think it says that its aims were invalid. It was just unable to give expression to it. Now, maybe it ends up being a kind of conservative I think his thing. Point like was anybody who was part of the movement had a mental disorder. <laughs> and yes, and that um, the real heroes are those, you know, uh, it's the Jews, the Jews who moved out of the ghetto and uh, the lower, the, the, the Jewish ghettos, when they came over at the turn of the century, uh, the, uh, mostly from Eastern Europe, they lived in ghettos. And now after in the post-war era, they made it, they got out, they became small store owners. Uh, and then the generation after the small store owners became the spectacularly rich, you know, the Bill Gates, the Chuck Schumers and so forth. So it was three generations the factory workers, uh, a lot of them were in the Communist Party, very active. Then the second generation after World War II, they're just making it. They're the lower middle class. They uh, own the stores and their accountants, things like that. And then the third generation is the spectacular success. It's the Chuck Schumers and the Bill Gates and the, uh, oh God, what's his name from um, Facebook? His name is Zuckerberg. Yeah, yes, Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg. So that's the third generation. And for um, for Roth, the the sixties uh, generation. These are pampered, spoiled kids who have all sorts of mental problems, basically because they're not hardworking, hardworking uh, people. Uh, like their parents' generation. Look, there were good things about that generation. Yeah, hard work, I respect hard work. They were also really nasty racists. I knew the Jews of that generation. Oh my God, you felt like you were in some some sort of Jewish Ku Klux Klan. But you'll find, you won't find that in Roth. You won't find that in Roth. Really nasty, racist sacks of shit, but successful. I won't take that away. And yes, Hardworking. I won't take that away. But is that the total reality? No. If the kids were rebelling, they were rebelling against things which are very ugly. Now, was there a lot of flakiness? Yes. Was there a lot of me-ism? Yes. Uh, 
And I say in the book, because I try to be objective, that a lot of the criticism of that generation was valid. I say that they were often attacked by people like Roth for being narcissistic and that it wasn't an accident that they came to be called the me generation. And I said, well, painful as it is for me to acknowledge, there is a lot of truth to that, that it was a lot of narcissism at the core of what was called the counterculture of the 1960s. And for me, the evidence of that was if your beliefs had any substance to them, how did it come to pass that when Bernie Sanders came along, he did worst by far among the baby boomers, Mm -hmm. namely all the children of the 60s. Bernie could never do better than 13 or 14% among the baby boomers. If you looked at Bernie's platform solely through the lens of me, solely through the lens of me, and Bernie was talking about a revolution when the very last thing you want now is to rock the boat. It was unsurprising because it was so narcissistic at its core that these people wouldn't give Bernie the time of day, 14% of the vote. So I concede there, you know, there was things that Roth were saying, was saying were true, but to airbrush all of that 1950s generation, which was so steeped in racism and all the real genuine outrage over that war in Vietnam and just say, oh, she has a mental disorder, you know. Now, that was really, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. Look, I'll tell you, I look at my high school yearbook and it's very, uh, it's very striking to me that even though our school was about a good 30% black, you might see in the first half, which are called candid pictures, believe it or not, you might see, I know you will find this astonishing, three pictures of black people. They weren't, they didn't exist. Mm. It's painful for me to look at now because I say to myself, you know, all this talk about black people being marginalized and what about black voices? And I look at the yearbook and I say, even though these woke people make me sick, I have to say no yearbook nowadays would look like that. Yeah. There has been a huge amount of progress, and I think that's what always strikes me about a lot of the wokeness, that they want to deny the, the one of the very few areas where there has been progress over the past 40 I, years. I totally agree. If you look at the Princeton Alumni Weekly, you would think all of Princeton were black. <laughs> really, you, you have to laugh. I, I'm, sometimes I think to myself, what must these old white alumni think about what's happened to their school? Uh, 
but I say the other side is, well, guess what? They do have pictures of black people now in that Princeton Alumni Weekly. And when I look at uh, my high school yearbook, I'm, I have to say, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of me because I was the big radical supporting the Black Panthers, supporting Angela Davis. Uh, I Christmas time, I sent out Angela Davis uh, Christmas holiday cards. <laughs> no, everybody thought I was a complete nut. And uh, yet I had no connection with the Blacks students in the school, none. So I, I, I wanted to ask you about, um, again, get your read on something much more contemporary. Um, and it ties into this potentially, because um, unlike perhaps maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago, you have now there exists a very full-throated critique of wokeness um, amongst kind of maybe some more heterodox parts of the left. What I really want to ask about is a conservative critique of wokeness. Now, um, I think, you know, we can all think of examples of cases where, um, you know, they basically call it, you know, cultural Marxist or it's communism. And it's fairly transparent as a kind of attempt to cast wokeness as the return of the old enemy. Um, but I wonder how, how do you navigate the situation now where it's not simply a question of untrammeled liberal woke hegemony, but that there's a, a clearly opposite pole, particularly in the US, um, around the Republican Party. Um, it's clearly wokeness has, uh, you know, colonized all or most elite institutions. But at the same time, there is a strong pole of, of opposition to it, one which in my view, doesn't get us any anywhere um, anywhere better. Um, there are aspects of the so-called right-wing critique of wokeness, which strike me as valid. Number one, there is a kind of bicoastal elite contempt for middle America. And I quote at one point Bernie Sanders, who says in a book, I quote, Bernie Sanders says, well, there is a real problem with this contempt for middle America, for white workers, uh, this kind of elitism, which at one point you were supposed to conceal, but now is flaunted, as in Hillary Clinton's famous basket of deplorables, which basically meant the whole white working class. So that kind of elite contempt for, so to speak, ordinary white workers, I think that's a valid, a valid criticism of the woke culture. Number two, I do believe that there are areas where one can say the issue is either ambiguous, for example, on the question of abortion, or where the avowals or espousals of this woke culture, people who menstruate, 
people who get pregnant, I think there's a justified outrage or indignation, not only at these, uh, out these false pretenses, but the idea if you disagree, you're obviously stupid or you're backward or you're a bigot mm-hmm. or you're a yahoo or you are a redneck no you disagree because it's completely idiotic that's why you disagree when i was a young man 13 14 i was quite popular so all of my friends invited me to their bar mitzvah there were at that time with a couple of rare seconds exceptions more one or two girls didn't get bat mitzvah it was just boys who were bar mitzvah mm. as i say a couple of rare exceptions were general so i got invited to a lot of bar mitzvahs and when i got older and my female friends were having babies they invited me to their baby showers which a woman had and they were supposed to bring gifts it's now become very commercialized. At that time, it was random gifts for the child to come. Now, none of my male friends to date has ever invited me to their baby shower. And <laughs> it's rude, now, really, yeah. <laughs> now, part of it may be because of my anti-Zionist politics. But I think the bigger reason is because none of my male friends has gotten pregnant. And so far, none of my male friends has requested of me that I send him a box of tampons. Yeah. You know, so these parts so these parts of the criticism of uh, woke culture strike me as being completely valid. But I'll acknowledge, of course, it's also mixed in with a certain amount of small-mindedness and a refusal to accept that the world is changing. Uh, but I, I, don't like, I don't like the certitudes. I don't like the certitudes. I don't think any person who opposes abortion is necessarily a... Uh, a uh, Yahoo or a right a backward. I think there are good grounds for supposing that at some point in the future, assuming the planet survives, and I think that's a big question mark, but assuming the planet survives, the verdict on abortion is going to be negative. I think that's a uh, it's going to be the same verdict as I point out in the book that was cast on eugenics or you know scientific breeding of peoples. That was all the rage among the woke people in the early 19, the 1920s. Everybody who was anybody on the left uh, supported eugenics because it was the application of science to human breeding. And that seemed like a positive development. Rationally, rationally um, uh, breeding the human race. Uh, and the verdict on that, obviously, after the climax of eugenics in the Nazi uh, era, the verdict on that has been wholly negative. And it happens that back then, 
the main opponents of eugenics were religious people. Yeah. Who said that everybody was born in God's image and we shouldn't fiddle with God's work. Every creation of God is of equal value. Um, so I think there's a good chance that the religious criticism of abortion will, in the end, um, will win out against the secular attachment uh, to abortion. That's a, you know. Uh, that's I mean, certainly the, the the kind of attachment to orthodoxy is is really problematic. Even though I'm I'm fully in, in defense of uh, abortion rights myself, but I yeah I I, I think the Imposing orthodoxy is is problematic. I I support a woman's right to decide uh, up until the last day. I'm I'm a radical Mm. on that. However, I think there should be a social taboo on it as if to say, this is not a good thing to do. But if at the end of the day you decide all things being equal, I'm going for the abortion, I have to accept that decision. But I don't think it should be socially validated uh because i think it's a morally very gray area so actually on the question of taboo because i I wanted to bring this up i think obviously freedom of speech is a fundamental right and a culture of open debate is essential particularly on the left and yet at the same time is there a case to be made for taboos not necessarily around comedy like oh we shouldn't joke about certain things which i think is always too subjective but uh a case for taboos around not maybe not opening up certain discussions. For example, to to open up the the discussion around eugenics to say, hey, let's let's explore eugenics. Maybe that's a good idea. Um, it's kind of good for there to be a taboo there. So I'm always um, quite ambivalent on this question because, on the one hand, would want to defend free speech, but on the other hand, I think it's right that there should be taboos around certain issues because they're the fact that that taboo exists is indicative of certain social progress that's been made that there's a consensus around certain things such as eugenics being bad so uh, what's your what's your take on this um it depends on what you mean by taboo should there be any legal restrictions on speech i only make one exception namely speech that has no ideational content you don't have the right of your university to refer to somebody in the class as that nigger, that cunt, that kike. You don't, that, that speech, but it has no ideational content. It's the equivalent of a, uh, of a club, and its purpose is not to further speech, but to stop speech dead in its track. Somebody makes an argument, and you stand up and say, well, uh, that's, that's a stupid argument, you nigger. That's not designed to further you know, speech, uh, the pursuit of truth. So that to me, uh, any institution, at least of higher learning, has the right to restrict on the grounds that it doesn't facilitate or further the pursuit of truth. Leaving aside that, I don't believe there should be any legal taboos. However, as you know, it's a truism, a hackneyed uh, a statement that because you have a right to do something, that doesn't mean you should exercise that right. So that's not a legal external taboo, it's an eternal taboo, which is to say, let's say somebody, a professor in Nazi Germany, uh, he or she uh, wants to pursue research on whether Jews have a genetic disposition to business, uh, crooked businesses, 
crooked, crooked business practices. They're all Jews. They, they, there's a large number of them who are crooked businessmen. You look at all the major scandals in the United States, whether it's most recently Bernie Madoff or Sam Banker Friedman. Well, they have a common denominator. They're all Jewish. So, uh, and it was the same thing with the insider traders in the 1980s. They were from Ivan Bosky down, they were all Jewish. So some professor says, you know, I want to do research whether there's a genetic component to this, uh, uh, the shady business practices, which seem to be so prevalent among Jews. So my view is it's Nazi Germany. And you have to, you have to have, you have to cross a very high threshold in order to justify to yourself. I'm not talking about legal prohibitions because it's Nazi Germany, so there's obviously no legal prohibition. Um, quite the contrary, but to justify to yourself that sort of research, because that sort of research in the real world, it's Nazi Germany, is going to have very um, uh, uh, pernicious repercussions. So you have to, in your own mind, in my opinion, you have to weigh the moral consequences of your exercise of free speech and decide whether it's worth the potential cost. Now, you have the right, but is this something, is this research of such substantial importance that it outweighs the pernicious consequences of undertaking such research? Uh, and that's an individual decision to make, but I think that as I started with the hackneyed expression, the fact that you have a right to something in this case, speech doesn't mean that you should be exercising that right because of its potentially pernicious consequences. And then you have to decide, have you crossed, have you, has your research project crossed a threshold of socially significant value that it should cancel the negative consequences of such research. Uh, that's a you know, decision each of us has to make. And that's very, you know, very modest level, these sorts of dilemmas that any professor uh, faces. So in my book, I describe, I'm teaching a class on Rousseau. And Rousseau talks about at one point in the second discourse, referring to civilization, which he contrasts with uh, pre-civilized men. Uh, he speaks about the corrupted foodstuffs that we eat and how these corrupted foodstuffs make us obese and make us physically uh, uh, um, lethargic. And so I, I like to use that as a segue to talk about how 
he anticipates this whole problem of junk food and obesity. All right, so that's usually what I do, trying to show Rousseau's relevance, and he is, you know, in terms of environment and things like that, he's really quite impressive. Uh, and then I have in once class, I have a student who's super obese, okay? Probably on the order of 400 pounds. And he's sitting there and you could see the sadness that weighs him down. And I'm looking at the text, I'm looking up at him, looking at the text, looking up at him. And I say to myself, you know what? This text is very rich. I don't need to make this point in class. There are a thousand other points I can make. So nobody forced me not to read that passage and I could have read it, but my moral judgment tells me, how much do I lose by not reading that passage? Not much. There are 10,000 other passages in the second discourse. It's very rich that I can read to the class. And on the other hand, I save this person, particular person, the humiliation of corrupted foodstuffs, obesity, and so forth. So uh, there I say, you know, you can exercise judgment and decide not to do it. Mm. Uh, and I think that's a reasonable thing to do. If it's a very important point in Rousseau, then I think there's a higher level of balancing before you decide not to address that point. And, and, and that's what's lacking in, I guess, a lot of cancel culture. It's according other people, uh, the moral, uh, you know, the believing that other people have the capacity to make moral judgment and to do it in good faith. Um, I think a lot of cancel culture just rules that out, out of hand, assuming yeah, that everyone have else is evil. Diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, experts who tell you what's the proper judgment to make. And the proper judgment usually is if there's any element of racism, sexism, whatever, anything, then it, trash it. So. As far as there's any great American novel, it's usually either said to be um, Moby Dick or Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Well, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn is filled with nigger. So a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert would say, don't teach that book. Now, there may be a grounds for not teaching it. I'm not going to deny that. However, if it's considered the great American novel, you'd have to present a very powerful argument against teaching the book. You can't just simply, it has the N-word out. No, it has the N-word, but it also happens to be the great American novel. So you have to make a more compelling argument. Now, maybe you can. But uh, I think there are two things. First of all, it has to be a very compelling argument to balance out the great American novel. And secondly, I think most of these diversity, uh, equity, inclusion experts, they've never read a book. They're completely illiterate. I mean, if you read Robin DiAngelo, uh, one British guy, he said, uh, White Fragility is the worst book 
ever written about anything. <laughs> I think that's a fair description of that thing, uh, which, as I say in my book, I, it revolts against my whole nature to call it a book. Um, so uh, I recognize you have to weigh things, but first of all, you have to make a powerful argument against something like Huckleberry Finn. And secondly, I think the professor is much more qualified to be making that judgment because the professor, first of all, is usually not always, but usually literate as against these DEI experts who are complete imbeciles. Yeah, it's certainly, certainly, a, a, yeah, I think people call it a post-literate society. It does certainly seem to, to fit it's a, that. It's a tweet society. Uh, people don't, you know, I was just commenting to my good friend, Jamie Stern Weiner. I said, so when Rosa Luxemburg, she's having a correspondence with her lover, Kostya, Kostya Zetkin. She was, she had a relationship with Clara Zetkin's um, son, Kostya. Clara Zetkin was her closest friend. And the correspondence consists almost entirely of each of them recommending books to each other in multiple languages. And how Rosa talks about, I would love for you to be here while we read this. I would love for you to share this with you. And, you know, nowadays, even the smartest people, the only thing they talk about is tweets. Just to finish off, I wanted to ask you to maybe reflect because it's been maybe a decade, possibly slightly more since, you know, the Great Awakening, as, as Matthew Iglesias called it. And now there's several discussions going on. I think one kind of exchange in, in Compact Magazine and but elsewhere as well about whether we've reached or passed peak woke. Whether yeah, we have. You, you can tell from Whoopi Goldberg, who's a complete airhead. She's about among the most stupid people on God's earth, I think. <laughs> uh, God forgot, as in the uh, the Tin Man forgot to give her a brain. Um, I knew her mother, who I liked very much. Wonderful woman. I, I worked with her for a long time with kids. Emma, wonderful person. I'm very sad that uh, what uh, she bequeathed to the world in terms of her her her, her daughter. Uh, in any case, uh, Whoopi has been of late attacking wokeness. She says. What's all this stuff about trying to change novels and, you know, the uh, e the Ian Fleming, uh, the James Bond series and trying to make it woke and Raul Dahl uh, trying to make him woke and uh, all these other things. And so she, she who's, you know, wokeness uh, incarnate, uh, so she started, and Whoopi always has her finger in the air. She's a brainless, but she at least knows which way the wind is blowing. And now that she's starting to attack it, I think uh, wokeness uh, uh, took a step too far. It's gotten, it, 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 it's reached a point of such terminal insanity that people realize the right thing now is to criticize it. The right mm. thing now is to criticize it. So as I say, I lament this fact because it's going to kill my future book sales. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm sure it'll persist. You know, even I think this is the thing that people criticize wokeness because now it's associated with corporations, so it loses its mm-hmm. radical seeming edge to it. But it, um, it unfortunately, I think a lot of its modes and ways of it demanding that people interact with one another will um, will persist a little while longer. So. Well, I'm not writing an updated version of the book. There's not going to be a second edition. That book is my last book. I don't want to ever write a book again. It's just too mentally. Well, sadly, I think the book will remain relevant for for a little while longer. So, um, you know, you can take that sort of ambivalent news as as you want. Uh, Norm, thanks very much for joining us. Okay. I thought you were going to be hard on me and... You proved to be a, a friendly interlocutor. Okay, well, okay. So I have a serious question. Why is black capitalized in the book? I, I was outraged by uh, this right from the start. That's the New York Times contention. And that that's, the style books say that. And I, I didn't want to. I didn't know what to do because you have to then, all the times you're quoting something and it's in black. And black is capitalizing the quotes then am i going to, what am i going to do with that am i going to keep it with a capital b or am i going to put it in a bracket with a lowercase b and the brackets like i say it looks shitty on a piece of paper and yeah. i care about how it looks so i do everything i can to eliminate brackets uh from my prose so i it then became so clunky what to do with it i just okay i'll go with the times convention because i don't want to mess up the book and I'll be honest with you, for me, the aesthetics of a book is important. I care about what's called the you know, aesthetics of the book, how it looks, how it feels. Do you know how much time I spend talking to the typesetter about the size of the font, the size of the line spacing, right. the margin spacing, uh, how the book feels? You know, we had the debate, I had to pay, pay my extra money because I wanted a better paper quality. I care about the aesthetics of a book and what's called the production values. Uh, so those things, so when you ask me why I capitalize B, because you would be surprised what a mess it becomes when you're trying to deal with that in a book. Some uh, no, I think you sold out. I think that's what's no, no, no. <laughs> Some people see a capital B and then elsewhere they see I'm using a lowercase B and then they think to themselves, the book was sloppily copy right. edited. Yeah. You know, yeah. think of saying he's using capital B, and so it looks like a sloppy copy, copy edit. So I let it go. I let it go. I don't think it makes any sense. You know, of course, I would use lowercase b and lowercase white. But um, believe me, all of those things were thought through. And a lot of times, just the other day, I was talking about, Paul Robeson, the hero of my youth and still a hero of mine. Mm. And uh, I was recommending to somebody on my website, I was recommending listening to an album of his, which compo- is co- composed by of songs he delivered in a, con- in a, uh, a concert in Moscow in 1958. And I said in, in, on my website that Robeson will be forever remembered in the hearts of those and the hearts and souls will forever reverberate in the hearts and souls of free. So free what? Free people, that didn't sound right. Free persons, that didn't sound right. Free men and women, it just didn't sound right. So I said, F it, will forever be remembered in the reverberating the souls of free men. 
You know, because it didn't sound right to me, the other thing. Free souls, free persons, free men and women. It sounded hackneyed. So I just did free men, knowing, of course, the everyone's going to come. Why didn't you mention women? Not that I'm forgetful of women. I have a very high regard for my mother. I have a very high regard for Rosa Luxemburg. I don't forget women, but it just didn't sound right to my ear. And yeah. I care about how the language sounds. Very often, I read out a whole book out loud. I read it out, the whole book out loud, just how it sounds to the ear. Yeah. yeah. No. I, yeah. I think that's 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 right. And I I think that the a lot of the woke stuff is just ironically for something that's super superficial. It's completely unconcerned with the aesthetics of of anything, because and it kind of it kind of indulges have, ugliness. You have to have an ear for it, and you can only develop an ear for it if you are a reader. You have to have a feeling for language. Yeah. It's slow. It's cadence. It's rhythm. It's poetry. You know. Uh, that's a, that's a, as they call it with wine tasting it's an acquired taste and these people are completely illiterate i mean rapping d'angelo i've never read prose like this I, I, illiterate and also uh, incredibly um incredibly literal at the same time you know yeah it, it's the idea no understanding of metaphor of symbolism it's just you know absolutely absolutely I, time doesn't allow us, but I would have given you examples. Okay, nice, nice, nice to meet you.